You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome to the Health Hub on Radio Maria Canada, exploring cutting-edge health and wellness information and therapies, helping you to take your health to the next level. I am your host, Kathy Biasse, and I am a holistic nutritionist and a professional cancer coach. Whether the genesis of joint pain is structural, from disease, or as a result of trauma, it is still pain. And pain can impact many areas of our health and our lifestyle, if not resolved to some extent. And this is the topic of our discussion today with Dr. Joshua Levitt. Dr. Levitt, who is better known as Dr. Josh by his thousands of patients and his hundreds of thousands of readers, followers, subscribers, and customers, is a naturopathic physician. He's got over 20 years of direct clinical experience helping patients find natural solutions to common, chronic, and complex medical problems. He is also the founder and medical director of Up Wellness, which is a nutritional and herbal supplement company that makes a whole line of products that he formulated based on his clinical experience. His passion for medicine and his remarkable talent for educating and empowering people about how to use naturopathic medicines to relieve pain and improve health will be on full display today in our show. We talk about key integrative ways to support joint health, um, is some sort of joint pain always to be expected as we age, and how pain can impact other areas of our health. Do stay tuned. We will be back in just a few minutes to talk with Dr. Josh. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Today's show has been recorded. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at The Health Hub RMC on all locations. Dr. Josh, welcome to the show. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, always, always good to have some great guests and great information. And um, the show is going to be packed with a lot of useful information because things like chronic pain, joint pain, they just seem to be pervasive in our society. society. Um, get, tell us a bit about yourself, you know, how you came to be an ND, all that fun stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I want this to be about you and your listeners more than it is about me, but I think maybe they deserve <laughs> a little introduction, right? So I'll, Oh, uh, they got to know who they're listening that. to, right? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, whether they can trust me, right? Um, as the, the, the snake oil salesman that I yeah. am. Um, 
So, um, and we could talk about snake oil later. There's an interesting story there. Maybe I can share if we have some time. Um, so I grew up in Southern California. Um, I was a rough and tumble kid, a surfer and a skateboarder. I, I had many, many of orthopedic injuries of my own um, when I was younger. And that brought orthopedics and musculoskeletal pain. It became personal, you know, back in those days. Um, I went to UCLA as an undergraduate where I studied neurophysiology. And then after that, um, I was one of those kids that always wanted to be a doctor. Um, but I was convinced by a bunch of doctors that I knew at UCLA that medicine was changing rapidly and changing for the worse. And um, I sort of took heed of that advice. And I went, I was fortunate to be able to go on a year-long kind of walkabout around the around the world with a backpack, hitchhiking, sleeping on beaches, this sort of thing. Um, and at one point I got sick. I got sick with a problem called cellulitis, which is an infection that started with a blister uh, on the back of my heel, um, spread up my leg. It was a big problem. And I was en route to Switzerland at the time. Uh, I was in my early 20s and um, I found my way into a Swiss pharmacy where I had an antibiotic prescription called in from doctor back home. And that cured my problem, but it also opened up my eyes to this entire world of natural medicine that existed right there in that Swiss pharmacy. See, in the US, where I grew up, including with a family of doctors, natural medicine, herbal medicine, it just wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing that, that was talked about. I had no idea it even existed. And right there in this pharmacy in Zurich, Switzerland, was the antibiotics that I needed, quite literally, to save my leg, maybe even save my life. Um, and then also this whole world of herbal and nutritional medicines, vitamins, minerals, homeopathics, uh, herbal medicine. And that kicked off a lifelong passion that persists today. So it, it's sort of an interesting and kind of ironic story. I'm the naturopathic doctor who got his start or whose passion got ignited on the day that I needed antibiotics. Um, and so that's sort of, that, that that's my story. And it persists today as sort of a, a practicing clinician with nearly 25 years of experience now kind of standing on that bridge in between mainstream conventional medicine and alternative medicine. So yeah, that's my story. Well, and that's, that's the bridge that I think as true practitioners, we all want to stand on um, having the East meets West ideology. I think, you know, from my short stint in, I mean, we all have a short stint here on this planet, but from my short stint, um, you know, meeting the two minds is the most powerful along with that education piece to the patient so that they have those questions to ask both aspects of medical care. So I, I congratulate you for doing that. Now, um, I'm going to let you segue into the snake oil story whenever you feel that that's appropriate, because I don't know the background <laughs> of that. So I'll leave that yeah. one up to you. Um, you know, I was going to go down a different path here, but you've opened up something um, that we don't talk about a lot here. And it is supplementation and it is adaptogens and we don't you know at this point i don't want to really go into specifics but how have you seen the course of these products these natural products progress as you have been in practice are they becoming more acceptable do you see them standing on that bridge with you between medicine and naturopathic medicine Absolutely, I do. And I promise you, we're going to get into the snake oil story at some point because it's a very interesting one. <laughs> and maybe that maybe we'll, we'll start there shortly. But yes, um, the to your question about the rise in popularity and mainstream acceptance of nutritional and herbal supplementation, absolutely. Like those kinds of products, the ingredients inside of those products are right there on that bridge with me. I would say that 25 years ago when I got into this, 
um, the bridge was very shaky at best. Like, I don't even think it was a completed bridge, really, to, to carry forward the metaphor. You know, the worlds were very, very um, separated from each other. Uh, I think there's still some of that to this day and actually comes from both sides, right? They have mainstream conventional medicine who thinks that all alternative or natural or integrative medicine is is quackery or, or snake oil. Uh, and then you also have that reverse dogma on the natural medicine side, people who think that all Western medicine is bad mm-hmm. or dangerous or toxic or just fueled by big pharma greed or something. And I think neither of those positions are true. Um, and that the good medicine lies on that bridge in between. And absolutely, the bridge is increasingly fortified. It's increasingly strong. And on that bridge exist all of these things, increasing amounts of research about diet, about lifestyle, about supplementation, vitamins, minerals, omega-3 fatty acids, uh, adaptogenic herbs, and other types of anti-inflammatory herbal medicines. And and um, yeah, I'm seeing more and more Western doctors um, not just accepting, but even endorsing or referring out for natural medicine therapy these days, which is a very good thing. It tells me that the bridge is uh, is getting built. It is a very good thing. Just the amount of information that has to be mastered to be somewhat of a of an adapted, adaptogenic supplemental doctor. Uh, you know, we can't honestly think that the medical field can incorporate all of that into their practice. So when we're able to get both ends meeting, that's where the true growth and the true beauty starts to happen. So we'll get back. You're to so some- right. And it's, <laughs> Go ahead. So yeah, forgive ahead. forgive me the interruption. You're, I think you're just so right. I was just going to piggyback on what you said. I think it's unrealistic to expect that anybody is going to be a master of all of mm-hmm. those domains. I, I I use the metaphor sometimes of a of like a housing contractors, right? Like you have plumbers and you have electricians, and and they both have expertise in a different area. And you wouldn't ask a plumber, or you wouldn't expect great results if you asked a plumber about electrical problem or an electrician about a plumbing problem. It's just not what they do. And so, um, you know, that's why. I wouldn't recommend that anybody come to me for acute high level trauma care. Cause that's not what I do. There's other doctors that do that. Um, and conversely or similarly, as it were, um, one should probably not ask a conventionally trained internist, family doctor, whatever the specialist is about natural medicines. It's just not what they do. And that doesn't make it bad. It just makes it not what they do. And I think there's an increasing understanding, especially amongst the smarter um, kind of more progressive people within the medical community that there is a field it's alternative medicine or natural medicine. It's not going away. It's not what we do. And that's okay. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's what I'm about. Well, absolutely. And within each, within each um, practice, naturopathic nutrition, whatever they have their own special, it takes a village to raise a healthy person. You know, that's you want to jump on another metaphor. And I think, I think that's where I see the most growth is that people are now saying, um, we need a team when we're trying to target optimal health. And uh, it's practitioners like you that are pushing that forward and forward and forward. We have to be open and yet we have to be selfish, I think, when it comes to what we're doing within um, our own health. So let's get on to- Yes, indeed. And that's especially true for chronic disease care. You know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it's ever more important to bring in a whole team uh, of care providers. And uh, yeah, my my bias, of course, is that there should be a naturopathic doctor on that team. Mm -hmm. Well, and you know, that level of of studiness, the level of- you know, oftentimes in, in, in practice where I worked in naturopathic doctors, when we're approaching, um, I'm not a naturopathic doctor, uh, but the naturopathic doctors I've worked with, when they're approaching the medical team, they've got a boatload of research behind them showing, you know, how 
integration in a certain case could be very beneficial. And I think that um, the more and more doctors are open to this, the more and more, you know, the more and more we're going to see chronic, you know, this level of chronic disease go down because nobody's happy with this level of chronic disease where we're at. Um, and when it comes, we're, we're, you know, I want to, I want to get onto joint pain here because the time certainly flies. Um, is joint pain something that as we age, we should be expecting? Wow. That is a great question. I don't want it to sound doom and gloom, um, but some level of joint pain or discomfort, stiffness, and the, all the related symptoms is to be expected, right? We have a structural body. We only get one. Um, the more we use it, especially if we beat it up when we're younger, like I did, there is some expectation that things are going to feel a little creakier. Things are going to feel a little stiffer, maybe require a little bit more lubrication before they get up and going. Um, but the ex- But it should not be expected expected that let me put it this way aging is not a disease um and there's not symptoms associated with it yes there are some age related changes that we can expect based on just the longevity of of the tissues you know the cross linking of our collagen you know the the structural integrity of our tissues uh, and the effects of even things like gravity uh, and time mm-hmm. but uh, the expectation that a person's going to be debilitated by pain? No, absolutely not. Our bodies can and do function for many, many decades uh, and uh, without without pain. So it should not be expected that a person's going to be debilitated. Um, leaning into movement has been something that I personally have taken on a lot. I have arthritis in my leg. I, I was a, base, a softball catcher. I've had broken legs. So I've I've got, you know, I got issues. Um, and, yeah. you know, before I met this person that I'm working with, I was, you know, I'd, I'd back away from pain. Sorry, that's my dog. Um, I'd back away from pain and, and, you know, adapt. So the hips were out of joint, the back and so forth. But is movement and understanding root cause of pain really key to overcoming that pain or at least managing it? Absolutely, it is, and I, I think what you were suggesting there is that le- is, is a very natural inclination, right? Something hurts, and so we limit the use of it, right? We get scared of pain for good reason. Pain is a fear-inducing response. When something hurts, that's giving our brain a message that that whatever it is we're doing is dangerous, and we should stop doing that. And that's a natural inclination to move away from pain. That's what limping is about. That's what kind of hemming up an arm that where a shoulder doesn't work, you know. Um, but it turns out, and there's a lot of literature about this, that, well, to put it this way, movement is medicine. Our joints depend on movement for better circulation, for lubrication via the synovial fluid that lubricates the tissues inside of a joint, for healthy strength and flexibility um, of the soft tissues in and around a joint. And so, yeah, absolutely. The lack of movement, you know, immobility or inactivity is one of the primary underlying causes of what I think we can fairly call an epidemic of chronic musculoskeletal pain. Absolutely. Would you say that, you know, of trying to limit pain is the main reason as we age that we have joint pain or is there, is it a degradation? Is it, what is the key here when we're talking about joint pain? 
That is a that is a great question. And I'm going to kind of push back a little bit and say that there are multiple keys. Like it's a key ring of keys mm-hmm. that have, uh, that, 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 that all need to be there in order for the person, uh, to be well or, 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 or to get sick with, with a musculoskeletal pain, certainly inactivity, uh, and all of the restrictions that inactivity causes, um, in terms of blood flow, neurologic inputs, progression of fibrosis, all, all that stuff. Inactivity is part of that story. Um, I would also argue that there are other parts of it too. And those other keys I would say are excessive inflammation. That's got to be a big one and high on the list Mm -hmm. of uh, underlying culprits for musculoskeletal pain. I would say soft tissue tension, especially muscular tension, uh, which can arise for a number of different reasons, but tension in muscles in and around a joint, right? The quadriceps, the hamstrings and the calf, for example, in the knee uh, that that all cross or act on the knee joint uh, or all the muscles of the upper extremity that act on the shoulder or the elbow, those muscles being tense, which can happen for a number of different reasons is another fundamental underlying cause of pain. And then there's a third, which people don't think about too much, which is called fibrosis. And what fibrosis is, is is the accumulation of scar tissue, which can happen on a microscopic level uh, or on a more larger macroscopic level, often at the site of old injuries, maybe like some of those injuries you had in softball or the ones that I had on skateboards, Mm -hmm. um, or as the result of kind of more subtle problems like chronic repetitive strain injuries, subtle amounts of inflammation injuries. These, we call them RSIs, repetitive strain injuries that aren't like a dramatic fracture of a leg, but rather the accumulation of inflammation and soft tissue sort of biomechanical abnormalities that then create an inflammatory response and lay down microscopic scar tissue in an area. And that scar tissue can restrict blood flow, restrict neurologic inputs and communication, and um, restrict joint motion. So yeah, in addition to inactivity, I would say inflammation, muscle tension, and fibrosis are big, big ticket items. When it comes to muscle tension, can we lump in fascia into that area? Um, you know, this is- I think that's fair. Tear. Yeah, yeah. I, I said, you know, I kind of, I, I said two things. I said muscle tension. I also said soft tissue tension. So mm-hmm. fascia is this sort of, um, this this sheathing that's like around the muscles that kind of encapsulates it, compartmentalizes muscles within various segments of our of our body. And yes, absolutely. Um, you know what? I should probably just rephrase it and say it's myofascial tension. <laughs> okay. um, so yes, absolutely. Uh, tension and fibrosis can affect the fascia as well. What about um, you know massage therapy in all of this? Is that part and parcel of some good joint health strategies? I think it fits in for sure. Um, what? Yes. So I would say absolutely soft tissue therapy, whether it's massage or trigger point, trigger point release or any of the number of different kind of body work techniques is definitely part of the solution, but it's, it's incomplete. Right. And, and the reason why I say that, and I think anybody who's ever had a massage can, can, has, has had this experience is that, you know, it feels great, right? If you like that kind of thing, you know, a massage can feel great and can really actually move the needle in terms of a chronic pain problem, like a low back pain, neck pain, but rarely will a person ever say that they got a massage and they no longer have their chronic problem, right? Mm -hmm. What it usually provides is some comfort, often some significant or even profound relief, but usually for a short period of time. And that's because the underlying problems that led to that chronic problem haven't really been addressed, right? We've addressed it with a with a Band-Aid type solution or a crutch, but it's a good thing. A Band-Aid or a crutch is a good thing. A massage can definitely be helpful, but it's not a complete solution to a complex chronic problem. 
when we talk about joint pain, I mean, a lot of people have different types of joint pain. There's an autoimmune arthritis. There is a, um, a structural arthritis, uh, many things. And of course, all the, all of the inflammation you're talking about and all the other ways that joint pain can happen. Is it a similar process to repair? Yes, I, there's certainly a lot of similarities regardless of the pain. Um, the, and, and yeah, the, regardless of the diagnosis, I should say, um, the yes, there's many different types of arthritis, autoimmune, like a rheumatoid arthritis was, would be a case in point. There's crystalline arthritis, uh, like mm-hmm. gout or pseudo gout, for example. And then you have your most common form of arthritis, which is probably misnamed. Um, that's the degenerative type, the the so used to be called the wear and tear type of arthritis. That's mm-hmm. osteoarthritis. That's where the cartilage thins out. Um, and you start to see these structural changes as a result. And 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 the subsequent uh, presentation of the inflammation, the muscle tension and the fibrosis. I think, so yes, there's a lot of overlap. Um, all of those conditions have some amount of each of those three things, but there's also a big misunderstanding. And the misunderstanding is that just because we see something on a laboratory test or see something on an imaging study, like an X-ray or an MRI in a person who has pain, what we often do is if we see an abnormality, let's say on an X-ray, for example, in a person who has pain, we immediately assume that that what we see on the X-ray is the cause of the pain, this meniscus problem Mm -hmm. or this bone spur or even up to the extreme case of a person who has a bone on bone disease. And it's very easy to assume that the pain is caused by the abnormality we see on the lab test or the imaging. And very often that's not true because the things that we're talking about now, the inflammation, the muscular tension, the fibrosis, those things don't show up on the x-rays or MRIs. So often we're making a diagnosis and using laboratory tests and imaging to confirm that diagnosis when the reality is the cause of the pain, the actual discomfort in the patient is related to something else that's not so easily visible on imaging or lab tests. Fair enough. We're going to take a quick break here, everybody. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes. You are listening to The Health Hub. Here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, Dr. Josh. Let's get into the snake oil story. I do not want this session to end before we hear that. Absolutely. Snake oil, right? (laughs) So I'm a naturopathic doctor. I also am a medical director at a nutritional supplement company that I founded. That's Up Wellness. So I've been accused of being a snake oil salesman. And when I say that, I say it with some amount of pride. And this is why I'll give you the, the, the short story. So when we in the United States were building the transcontinental railroad a couple of hundred years ago across the United States, we imported a lot of workers, many of whom were from China. And those Chinese workers were doing this backbreaking work, building the transcontinental railroad. And in their backpacks, you know, their medical bags, they had snake oil that they brought 
over from overseas in China. And this snake oil was used both internally to drink and uh, and as a topical, kind of as a liniment to rub on painful, inflamed, swollen joints from all the work on the railroad. Anyway, this was, uh, apparently worked like a charm. You know, American railroad workers, everybody else working on the railroad, other uh, people from other countries were fascinated by this as the magic tonic that cured the back aches and the shoulder pain from the railroad work. So then American uh, enterprising business people started making snake oil of their own. The famous, most famous one was a guy named Clark Stanley who made Clark Stanley snake oil. And he would harvest rattlesnakes from the American West, uh, render the oil, put on a big show with a covered wagon, sell snake oil, make a lot of money, and then go to the next town. And then that became tedious because rattlesnakes are dangerous. So he started actually just using mineral oil um, and, you know, it was just a fraudulent product and he would sell it from one town to the next town to the next town. Eventually the old version of the FDA caught up with him and snake oil became what we know of it as now, which is the, you know, the symbol of quackery in medicine, right? A fake fraudulent product. But, and this is where it gets really interesting. More modern studies have evaluated Chinese snake oil. And it turns out that the oil that they that they render from Chinese snakes comes from Chinese water snakes. And these water snakes eat fish. And that causes the flesh and the oil in the flesh of the Chinese water snake to be an extremely concentrated source of omega-3 fatty acids, more specifically icosopentanoic acid. In fact, Chinese water snake oil has more EPA, icosopentanoic acid, than any other substance known to man. And as, as anybody who knows about omega-3s knows, they are anti-inflammatory. And there's been a bunch of studies on modern studies on this oil that's rendered from Chinese water snakes, proving that indeed it is anti-inflammatory. It probably very well did help the aches and pains. And Clark Stanley is the one that turned snake oil into a quackery thing. So it turns out that when you stick with the original, the, the original gold standard product, snake oil actually works. So there's your snake oil story is there still snake oil around it real, is still real stuff. available real stuff yeah 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 the real stuff yeah in this country it's it, I've, I've not seen it for sale in this country usually in this country for supplement sake we use uh we use fish as the source of mm -hmm. um or algae as the source of omega-3s um but as i'm told uh, snake oil is very much still available uh in china there's such a block for some people about the value of supplements, the value of natural products in health. And, and I don't get it. So many of our medications have a root in plants or bark, or it, it's just, it, it, it kind of amazes me. You know, you'll see some doctors recommend a vitamin, but then say nothing else is working. Nothing else can possibly work, but take a multi to sort of balance things out. And I think it's so, it's, it's, it's a piece of health. I think we can't, you know, with our food sources and everything um, and with certain health conditions, we can't get enough from our food. And I think that it's an important piece of the process. Are you, are you a trained uh, expert in this in Chinese medicine? Not so much in Chinese medicine because Chinese medicine from the East with yin and yang theory and five mm -hmm. elements theory and the whole like pharmacopoeia of herbal medicines is a distinct entity. I certainly have some experience with it and I certainly have, um, I, I have physicians in my office that are experts in it. My expertise is in the application of more Western herbal medicine, which is mm -hmm. another pharmacopoeia itself um, and all, and, and the administration of all the things that you just mentioned, the vitamins, the minerals, the amino 
amino acids uh, and what we might think of as Western or mainstream nutrition. What do you think are the key supplements? I mean, I know everybody's different and I know people are going to present with different things, but what are the key supplements people with joint pain are on most often? Yeah. So this is an area that's very close to my heart. As as I said, I formulate products for up wellness. So it's a, it's a, it's very much close to my heart and to my, uh, to my, my passion and my interest. I've, I've done a lot of tweaking and experimentation clinically with patients over the years, observing patterns and what works, what doesn't, you know, why some people get better and other people don't. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you a rundown um, of the, the, the big hits of nutritional and herbal supplementation uh, for people with joint pain. And again, you're right, caveat, not every, you know, every patient is different, but there's some broad strokes that I think are generally appropriate mm-hmm. um, for most people. Number one, in the mineral realm, I would say magnesium, uh, very, very commonly deficient in the diet uh, for all sorts of reasons. Many people don't eat enough foods that would contain magnesium. And then I think like you mentioned, uh, the soil is depleted in magnesium because of monocropping and all kinds of agricultural practices. So magnesium is really important, especially because magnesium decreases muscle tension. So we talked about muscle tension as a cause. Magnesium is one of the things that can be immensely helpful for people in whom muscle tension is part of their of their chronic pain problem. Now, so before you go one. on, um, can I just yeah. jump in and ask, are you RDA or like, do you, do you recommend the RDA? Or are you usually higher than the average? Yeah. So ever? I'm using these things typically therapeut- therapeutically, therapeutically at, at yeah, at higher than okay. uh, we're not talking about. Uh, yeah, so we're using magnesium in this case as a medicine, um, okay. and it has some issues. Uh, it can, it, depending on the form of magnesium, we can get into details there. Uh, loosen the GI tract, but a lot of times I'll bring magnesium doses up much, much higher than what's the minimum daily allowance, and really try to infuse those tissues richly with magnesium. Well, it, it is a, than- an interesting supplement. I'm starting here so much. I mean, it's always been sort of the key to a lot of different things, but. It- it seems to be now, um, I hear much, much more about magnesium and the deficiency. What is the best form of magnesium for muscle tension? Yeah. So my, my preference usually is magnesium citrate or citrate, citrate as it's sometimes okay. called. Yeah. That's the form that I usually use. It tends to have the best absorption. Um, it's reasonably well tolerated. It's inexpensive for most people. Uh, and that's the go-to form. If for, for whatever reason, magnesium citrate is not well tolerated, it can loosen the stool in some people. Uh, then I'll switch over to magnesium glycinate. Okay. And what about combination formulas? I've seen more and more of those come to market. Combination of yeah, different each, magnesiums. Sure. Each different form of magnesium has a slightly different personality, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm seeing these different chelates uh, you know, show up, formulas that have three or four or five or six different forms. And I think those are fine. Citrate does tend to be my preference though. Okay, great. Sorry, you go now. Next supplement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the next one I would put uh, I would put turmeric at the top of the list, but more specifically curcumin, um, which is the active ingredient, if we want to call it that inside turmeric. Turmeric is an, is a spice, a yellow spice. You'll have it in your spice rack to make curries and things. Um, and inside turmeric, there's an ingredient called curcumin and curcumin is an anti-inflammatory compound. And so raw turmeric root, the root powder in the spice jar only has about 2% curcumin by weight. Well, if you concentrate that, 
right? You can do some phytochemical processing and concentrate the curcumin up to a much, much higher level, even as high as 95%. Now you're looking at a substance that has is a potent anti-inflammatory. And I'm a big fan for people with chronic musculoskeletal pain, especially if there's an inflammation component of, uh, of curcumin derived from turmeric. Okay. Those are the top two. Do you have more? Yeah, I can keep going. Um, yeah. I would put Bos- I'd put Boswellia high on the list. Boswellia, uh, a lot of people have heard of this herb. Um, it's the dried resin from a tree uh, that's known as frankincense, which mm-hmm. is a, a biblical herb. Um, so it's an ancient uh, herbal medicine. And it also has profound and powerful anti-inflammatory effects. And there's even some studies on Boswellia using it against conventional anti-inflammatory drugs where it works n- almost equally as well in terms of symptom reduction. And there's some early work on showing that Boswellia can help to improve the structural integrity of cartilage. So in the knee, in the hip, um, smoothing out some of that wear and tear kind of effect is something that Boswellia can do. And it's almost always a part of joint pain protocols uh, for, that I put together. Interesting. Now you haven't said anything about omegas. Is that not something that you're as invested in? I, I like omegas a lot. I mentioned the snake oil and mm-hmm. um and I do think that there is there's no question that the standard American diet is grossly imbalanced in terms of the omega uh, fatty acid ratios. We need more omega threes and less of the omega sixes. So that ratio, if that ratio should be about one to one, the, the typical average American is eating about fifteen to one um, mm-hmm. omega six to omega three because of all the processed foods. Um, and so yeah, absolutely, a dietary change is the way I like to address that primarily um, by minimizing the wrong kind of fats and maximizing the good ones that you get from good healthy sources of fish and you get from nuts and seeds and plants. Um, and then to the if the diet can accomplish it, then it's great. You don't need supplementation. If the diet, for whatever reason, a person's unwilling or unable to make those changes, um, then uh, dietary supplementation with omega-3s can be a really important part of that as well. In in that case, I use uh, fish oil usually. Okay. Um, I just want to touch on a bit of gut health here because we did, or I did bring up the autoimmune condition of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. So in a protocol, would you be dealing at all with gut health or is that just too, uh, too much of a rabbit hole for a lot of practice? It's a great question. And yes, it is a rabbit hole, but it's a rabbit hole that we need to go down. Um, You know, there is increasing amounts of research that's demonstrating that the health and the diversity and the balance of that ecosystem inside of our GI tract, that GI microbiome and the influence that it has in the gut, on the gut lining, and then systemically in the rest of our bodies is profound. It's, it, it, it's, it's, we are carrying around trillions of microorganisms and they have a huge influence over our immunological reaction, our musculoskeletal health, of course, our gastrointestinal health, cardiac health, dermatologic health, even our mind and mood. So yes, the, the GI tract is a fundamental part of, I think the treatment of almost every patient, right? Especially those with autoimmunity. There's, there's not an autoimmune disease in the book that doesn't have gastrointestinal microbiome correlations with it. Um, So yes, it's an area that absolutely needs to be addressed. I've read two research papers in the last three weeks, I guess it is, on the gut-muscle axis. Um, Mm. Now, there's the gut-brain, there's the gut, you know, so many axes of of gut health. Does it all come down 
to inflammation? Uh, inflammation is a big part of that. I, I wouldn't, I don't know that it all comes down to it, but it certainly is a linchpin. Um, and when the, and that's because when the GI tract or the microbiome inside the GI tract is in disarray, right? If there's not enough diversity there, if there's been overuse of antibiotics, or if there's an overgrowth of an abnormal or patho- pathogenic species, or not enough of the good bugs, it creates this problem that you hear sometimes as leaky gut syndrome or otherwise known as intestinal permeability problems. And those intestinal permeability problems do kick off a cascade or initiate this biochemical set of reactions that greatly increase the risk of excessive inflammation regardless of the stimulus, right? So the stimulus could be a mosquito bite or a stub toe or an autoimmune disease. And when you have ex- the are, are at risk for excessive inflammation, which is what happens when you have a disordered GI microbiome, you will have more inflammation and then you will have more pain regardless, like I say, of the stimulus. So that's the reason that the GI microbiome needs attention um, in virtually every patient with a chronic inflammatory condition. When when you're dealing with joint pain, then are you? What would you say is foremost on your mind? Is it decreasing inflammation? Is it trying to increase synovial fluid, if that's even possible? Uh, improve cartilage, or is each and every person different? So it's all of the above, right? That's one of those sort of trick questions. Um, in, in in if I'm working one on one with a person, I'm assessing what the my best guess is at the collection of underlying causes that are the mm-hmm. most prominent in that particular person and then trying to address those. So some people might have a more significant microbiome problem than others, maybe because they have a long history of antibiotic use. Um, another person might have another reason, you know, a, a series of old musculoskeletal injuries where a lot of fibrosis and scar tissue is, uh, is, is present in or around their joints. And so, yeah, so on an individual basis, I'm kind of targeting with more like laser like focus. But I also work on a population-wide scale. Like I say, I formulate supplements and it's impossible to formulate supplements for mm-hmm. one person when you're formulating at the at the kind of scale that I do. And so in that case, I try to put together formulas that address the most common underlying variables for the most people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and like I say, those are inflammation, muscle tension, and fibrosis. So I put together formulas uh, that try my best to find the ingredients that can address those things in a safe and effective way for the largest number of people. Would you would you say that you have a certain demographic of people that you see? Is it athletes? Is it injury? Is it uh, autoimmune disease? Or is it across the spectrum? Yeah, my practice has been really eclectic uh, and 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 diverse. It, it would be it's so interesting. You know, it's, it was young and old. Um, it was it was uh, you know very common problems. Like one person, I might be cleaning earwax out of their ears, as, as unglamorous as that might sound, and then the next person might have a chronic and severe autoimmune disease. So I kind of prided myself during the many many years of my uh, you know full time work as a as a, a practicing clinician on a really diverse practice that was that was. Um, uh, you know, everything from common to complex to chronic problems. Interesting. Um, we're approaching the end, unfortunately, because it's a great conversation. How can people find out more about your supplement company? Do you work online? You know, are you international? How can people get a hold of yeah. you? 
or follow you? Yeah, thank you so much for asking. So my, I, I, um, I, I'm in clinical practice here in Connecticut, but my practice at this point in my career is full. So I'm not able to take new patients right now. And that's a, that's that, but, but my, my clinical practice where there are a bunch of other doctors uh, who are kindred spirits with me is here in Connecticut. Um, and then my work as a medical director, as a spokesperson and the product formulator is for up wellness. And that's, that's, that's where most of my energy is these days. Um, people can find me there at upwellness.com. That's the website um, for the company. And then I also have been doing a lot of educating um, on the social media sites. So this is on Instagram where my handle is at Dr. Josh Levitt, D-R-J-O-S-H Levitt. And I'd love for you to come over there and follow me with the, I think we're over 65,000 people following me over there. And that's been a fun place to engage with people about Amazing. all sorts of different topics. Um, and then, um, yeah, we've also grown a quite a TikTok following as well, which is, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in the news these days, we'll see if the platform uh, remains, remains viable. That's been fun. <laughs> yeah, the, that remains viable as well. And my handle over there is just at up wellness, um, which is the name of the company. Yeah. So um, upwellness.com or find me on Instagram or TikTok. Wonderful. Everybody go seek that out. Lots of great information. I've suck it out myself. <laughs> um, Dr. Josh, thank you so much for being with us. Very informative. Um, really glad that you came on our show. Absolutely. Kathy, thank you for having me. This was a treat. Thank you, everybody. We'll talk to you next week on the Health Hub. have been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.